is the Grow Your Clinic podcast from Clinic Mastery. We help progressive health professionals to lead inspired teams, transform client experiences, and build clinics for good. Now, it's time to grow your clinic. Welcome to the Grow Your Clinic podcast. My name is Ben Lynch. In this episode, we are speaking with Hannah Dunn from DOTS Occupational Therapy for Children in Melbourne, Victoria. Through this podcast, we talk about leadership, what it means to Hannah, and how she's evolved her leadership style over the years to support a fast-growing team. We explore recruitment in this competitive landscape and retention of quality team members, how you create pathways for personal and professional growth. We also explore family dynamics and how to manage a growing family with a growing business, the hardships, the adversities, the challenges, and the things that have worked in Hannah's world. This is a really interesting episode that takes a few different turns. So stay tuned and always look out for what's the one thing that I could implement from this that would make a meaningful difference to the journey that I'm on. Let's pick up the discussion with Hannah now. You've got three kids. Correct. At a months, four years and seven? Yeah, pretty much. Three and a half and seven, yep. And you've had the business for how long and where does that kind of fit in the timeline with starting a family? Yeah, so I had the business for nine years, but the first year was just me doing it on my own and then a few years of having subcontractors and kind of doing it that way. Well, when I say a few, two years. And then I was like, okay, I'm pregnant. I'm definitely just going to close off the subcontracting part and just go mm-hmm. and enjoy my leave and close the business off. And then there was a psychology clinic and a speech pathology clinic that I'd kind of been talking to a little bit about moving in together. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm kind of pregnant and I think I'll just close dots down. And they were like, no, you can do this. Like, we'll support you. It'll be great. Just keep your subbies. They can work in the rooms. And I was like, okay, good. Great. And so we then found a lease and we were like, okay, we've got this. The contract's going to come in like a month before I'm due. It's totally fine. We'll get it signed. We'll get it set up and we'll get going. And the previous tenants to us left all this damage and left all these dirty dishes in the sink and stuff. So the contract kept getting pushed and pushed. And the psych said to me, I just guarantee the moment you go into labor, these contracts are going to turn up. And sure enough, my phone started ringing and it was no. the contracts have come through. We have to sign them. And Warwick, my husband, answered the phone and was like, uh, okay, we'll sort it out in the next couple of days. So the psych bought the contracts in the hospital and I signed them the next day when I had a one-year-old. So yeah, that's where that timeline fits in. Far out. So it was just, it was on. Were you able to have like a break or settle in or it was kind of like not with selling in with bubs and business, just going at the same time, got no time to do that? How'd you manage? Yeah, Tilly just came with me everywhere. So she, for the first three months of her life, I was answering the phones and doing everything from home, but booking the appointments with the subcontractors and getting all that sorted. And then at three months, I was like, I need help. And the speech and site company were more established than I was, and they had administration support. And they were like, you won't know yourself when you get admin. And I was like, what am I going to do with admin for so many hours? They were like, just start with four hours. So I was like, okay. So I did a post on Mums and Bubs group and said like, just looking for someone with some experience and to help me. 
And I got Lisa Clark, who has now been with me for seven years as, wow. and is now our factors manager. So it was an amazing yeah, growth moment. Going into business is such a big undertaking. Also starting a family is a big undertaking. Take me back to kind of that time and even the decision-making or conversations that you were having around starting a family because a lot of folks will say, oh, maybe I'm not quite ready or I want the business to be in a certain stage before we do that. Did you have any sort of contemplation about the timelines and how they are fitting together? Yeah, I didn't really because I think it was a different world back then, the pre-NDIS world of being able to grow your business at a rate that was manageable for you. And so I think it was much easier back then when you were trying to navigate both family and business. But I also think that there's huge advantages with NDIS in that you can just pick up a client tomorrow if you feel like you've got space for one. So I didn't really have any hesitation. The big draw card for me was feeling like I could have more flexibility than when I was employed because the employed roles back then as well were quite rigid in their hours opposed to now when they're, they've got to be flexible to attract the right staff. Mm. We'll talk about that because you've done some really awesome things with team and experienced team members as they progress through their years of experience and at the clinic uh, mm. with you. In the early days though of business, give us an insight as to what was happening managing family life and running a business. Like, did you get any sleep? No, I never. No, I definitely was running on no sleep. And also I wasn't putting into my staff the way that I can put into my staff now. But again, different landscape because we were getting 10 applicants for one position because people wanted to move into PEDS opposed to now. So, no, I was definitely just working. I've got heaps of photos with Tilly just asleep on my lap, cross-legged with my laptop in front of me or asleep on the bed next to me. So, yeah, it was definitely a different world. Now, if people ask me for advice around how do you manage the transition with business and into parenthood, I say, if you can, you ideally need the first three months where you have no contact with the business. That's ideal world. Mm -hmm. I just think if you can get through those first three months, you can then manage to slowly build up and be able to engage again. And what did your role look like at that point? Were you still consulting a fair bit and then had to not see clients for a period? You obviously had the client load coming in. Just paint a picture as to what your week might look like at that period, especially through the first six months really of having Tilly. Yeah. So I didn't see any clients again until Tilly was probably about six months old and I started doing just Saturday work. So Warwick could have Tilly or doing after hours. And it was pretty like flexible in what I picked up. And then more towards the 10 months, she went into childcare. And that was when I was able to really come back and focus in on work. I kind of set these barriers in place as to being like, I don't want her to start childcare till she's like 10 or 11 months old. But I think people, like if other people feel like it's right for them, then being able to do that sooner uh-huh. is what other places have done. And what was your support network like at the time? Did you have family or friends or were you largely doing it yourself with Warwick there at home running business, taking care of family? Because we don't have enough on our plate, we were also renovating a house at the same time. So we were living with mum so we could renovate our house at the same time. So mum was, yeah, a massive support and had her 
to be able to, like if the phone rang and I had Tilly screaming, I could quickly pass her off if mum was there and then take the call and pretend like I was professional. (laughs) But there's times where like I remember booking in interviews for new staff and having care for Tilly booked in and then that care falling through and having to bring her with me and the interviews just being hectic. Going back on that time then, what do you sort of reflect on now and think, you know, they were a couple of key things that I did, whether that was actual actions or whether it was just some sort of mindset that you had to navigate through what is quite a busy period of life. What do you sort of attribute to you being able to go through that stage, you know, quite successfully? Definitely the sports of the psychologist and the speech pathology practice. And also having, yeah, really good family support. Also having Lisa come on board, which just took the weight off my shoulders and really setting up structures. So automatic email replies, voicemail messages, letting people know when you'll get back to them. So making sure, and that's what I coach people on now. If they ever ask me, I just say, make sure it says, I'll call like Thursday afternoons is when we return these phone calls. I'm intermittently checking emails. Please understand it may take seven days for me to get back to you or whatever the time frame is. And I just think absolutely make sure you've got admin support in place. Like you just can't, I just don't know how people can do it without that support in place. And it seems scary in the beginning. And the psych said to me, when you bring on admin, you actually won't know. You'll just come up with all these tasks and think, how did you ever manage without them? And I kind of thought, I can't imagine that happening. But as soon as I brought Lisa on, I thought, oh my gosh, I could do so much with her. And now we have Lisa and Louise as practice managers, as well as three full-time client connection teams on our front desk. So they definitely have work to do. (laughs) Plenty of work now. Yes. Paint a picture of what the clinic is today, because we'll come back to sort of the earlier journey, but where are you at now with team size, admin, therapists, and clinic sites? Yeah, so we've got three primary locations being in Melbourne's western suburbs, in Werribee, in Footscray and then in the northern suburbs in Bandura. And so each one of those clinics had four clinic rooms and a shared office space, which is really important to our team. And we've just moved into a different Werribee clinic, which has eight rooms plus a gym space, which is super exciting for us to now have that space for our pediatric clients that we work with. And then we have one satellite site that we work out of, which is we have a couple of schools we work out of as well, but a pediatrician clinic is the other one. Yeah. So quite big. In the early days, though, when you are growing and you're juggling a lot, how did you go about knowing what to focus on? Because there's so many things that are requiring your attention or that you could do or that you should do. Reflecting on it now, what was your process for determining, all right, this is what I need to focus on to be able to grow sustainably? I think definitely whatever was in front of me and urgent is how I was focused. Like if I'm totally honest, that's what, yeah, it really was. And I think also prioritizing the staff, like without the staff, you don't have a business. And so whatever it was that affected them was the stuff that I was ironing out. And also particularly one thing I'd heard from a lot of practitioners was just pays being mucked around. So I always made sure that was my number one priority that I've never missed a pay cycle. I've never not paid staff what they're owed. And I think that's really important. Yeah, great. Sort of identifying what was a pain point in the market Mm. at that point and making sure that you were able to solve that for the folks that you're working with. 
No, I was just going to say, sorry, Ben, that I had also worked in two other private practices before I started DOTS. And in one of those private practices, I'd been interviewed, told there was heaps of support and then started there and there was no support and the director was absent. I just never, ever saw the director. Uh I felt like she wouldn't know what we even did on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm really passionate about being present and that my staff know it doesn't matter what time of day, they can always contact me. Yes. So that's been, I think that was a really big learning that allowed me to then be through that process and just make sure they still knew that they were a priority. It's so interesting how our own experiences kind of shape or form the way we do things, whether that's clinical care or our approach as a leader. In the early days, how would you characterize or describe you as a leader? and your approach to leading a team, especially a growing team, and then how does that contrast to today? Back then, I think terrible. (laughs) (laughs) We're all growing. I have no idea how we got through that. What do you do? How how would you show up as a leader? What was like the leader? I, again, a previous experience was that I'd had a really amazing director at the company that I was at before I started my own business. And she was really open, really available. And she did have a really strong belief around communication and being vulnerable was a really big thing that I took from her, being able to show up and own our mistakes and know that there was no ramifications. It was just growth. And so that is really what I took with me and really listening to my team and understanding what their pain points were and what their challenges were and being able to address those things. So with that, because I know part of your core values is communication solves everything. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, yeah. if it's, it's probably but more articulate. Nothing can't be solved without good commu- with good communication. Yeah, awesome. And maybe that's the connection there of that previous Later, how do you go about to that point, especially early? I'd love to know the contrast here of, okay, I can listen to my team. I can be vulnerable and help them be vulnerable and own your mistakes and be okay to keep making those mistakes. But then there needs to be some accountability that we're not just reckless or sloppy with what we do. I need to maybe have the tough conversations. How'd you go kind of back then, early days business, being able to have a tough conversation and how does that compare to today? I think just even my emotions, like I'm a lot more level in those conversations. I think previously I was quite anxious about how people would perceive what I was feeding them back, whereas now we've got structures in place, there's expectations, there's pre-warning, like everyone on my team knows that if any family calls and requests to change a therapist or if they call to provide feedback that's challenging, my team know that they 100% will hear that feedback. Uh-huh. And so they never, ever have an expectation of maybe I don't know something or maybe something went wrong. We never say, oh, you're no longer seeing this client. They're going to go to this therapist and not give them anything else. They get told exactly the feedback that the family were told and we have good structures in place so that they know how that's done. I think that's been a really big difference. And I think one of the really tangible outcomes that I can contribute to the change in our communication and our team feeling safe in being able to communicate is I used to be really anxious in the early days to open my emails because I thought there might be a resignation sitting there. 
I mean, I think we've all had resignations via email or a quick pull into the hallway it kind of progressed to. And now I sit in a really privileged position in that I have not had anyone resign from my team that I haven't known about that was coming. So at the moment, I know of two therapists who are currently applying for other jobs. I'm down at their reference. I've got people who tell me they're pregnant at six weeks. The team just feels so safe in being able to share that information and know that we're going to support them and not try and, yes, we're going to try and retain them, but we are definitely also supporting those journeys. And also I just feel so proud of therapists going out on their own as well. Like it's not a negative for them to leave us and set up their own practice. We support that and I think it would be foolish to think that's not going to be part of what some of our team may desire to do. So Mm. if we understand that that's something that is going to happen, well, we may as well embrace it than fight against it because it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. Was there a time where you were against it and were quite protective? What changed it for you then? I think I was really scared. I was scared of like what would happen to our clients, what would be the perception. I think there's a culture of guarding our clients and being very protective and restraint of trades in contracts and things like that. So I think just through my own learning and experience, seeing that there's enough work for everyone and that it's best to have strong networks than to be creating barriers. Yeah, it's a good point. I think that was one of our earlier discussions of a team member transitioning close by. If I were to ask some of your team how they would describe Hannah, what do you think they would say? I think I would say generous and supportive, also that we provide the right level of challenge for them. Challenge how so? In the sense of challenging, like some of our clinicians might not be as good at getting their non-clinical work done. And so really being able to challenge them to the right level to kind of push them to get that done. Mm -hmm. Some of our therapists, we can push to kind of see more clients because we feel like that's where they're strengths are and provide that support there to do that. Whereas other ones of our therapists, we feel like we recognize that maybe pushing them to see four clients is probably enough for the time being and providing project work might be the better match for that person. So I guess creating that, we focus so much on our clients, creating the just right challenge for them, thinking about transitioning that over for our clinicians as well. Mm, yeah, really neat way to think about it is providing those challenges and op- opportunities for people to grow in their career. You spoke earlier about providing pathways where maybe there was a season where things were quite rigid. There was a ceiling you hit and really the o- only option was to start your own thing. Mm-hmm. Give us an insight into some of the ways that you've been able to create pathways for team members to grow as you've grown. Yeah. So previously we had subcontractors. They basically were sitting on a percentage. I used to bring them on at basically the top percentage and there was nowhere to go. Now we have team leaders. So we've got our OT team leaders, there's three team leaders. What that involves is being able to have their full day of leadership, which means I don't see clients on those days. Some of our team leaders have two full days of that. They're available to the team. They do project work they develop programs like our groups programs and things. Yes. Then below that, we've got our stream leaders and we have five stream leaders. So they manage things like our student placements, school relationships, our like handouts for families. And then we have senior OTs. There's is more around the supervision of lower staff and then our occupational therapists and then our graduates and our new graduate occupational therapists. 
So, yeah. yeah, I don't know that we said this, but we are just an occupational therapy practice. Yes. Not just, but we are an occupational yeah. therapy practice. Yeah, why is that? Why, you know, in so many clinics they'll choose to branch out, maybe they add speech or psych or some yeah. other discipline. What's the reasoning behind that? That I am not passionate about psych or speech, that I'm really passionate about OT. And I did have a period where initially when I started DOTS, that was my goal, to be multidisciplinary and to have everyone. And I had a friend who was a speechy. She came on the team for a period of time just before we moved in with the psych and speech clinic. And I just learned very quickly that I didn't have the resources to support her. I wasn't passionate about speech and supporting that area. And I thought, like she was quite experienced and was a really good fit for the team and everything, but I just felt like I was letting her down constantly and I didn't want to have to manage resignations of a speechy to try and recruit to speech as well as recruiting to OT. felt like it would dilute my OT capacity as well. Speaking of recruitment, it's a challenging environment to recruit. Like you said, there was once a time where you had an abundance perhaps of applicants that would just show up and really the ball was in your court, so to speak. We shift forward and perhaps with the NDIS, with a lot of the environment at the moment, it's really competitive out there to get the talent that you want, perhaps the years of experience that you want, the type of therapist that you want. How do you go about recruitment in such a competitive environment? What are some of your approaches or philosophies, even your methods for recruiting the therapists that you need to serve the client base you've got? Yes. So we always have the mentality of recruiting. We have our website set up so people can send through and join the team interest. And if we find the right person, we absolutely will create a role if we don't have one. Really what we do is... Previously, I used to not employ new graduates because I didn't have the scope to. We now have 25 OTs on our team. And so I feel like we've got the structures in place now in which we can recruit new graduates. So that's massively helpful. Running student placements. We have a student basically full-time for the whole year, sometimes too. So we have a huge amount of students coming through our practice, which is why it's a portfolio on its own. I think that is massive. I have taken on a lecturing position at La Trobe University as well. So that connects me with students, which is really helpful. And I think our attention rates of staff really help in our promotion of the clinic and being able to say that this is what we do. And also, we definitely, definitely don't pay the highest rates. We absolutely focus on all the other things that we offer, things like team retreats, as Clinic Master refer to them, culture days, which we call team time. Also, just the rewards program that we've got in place also from you guys at Clinic Mastery. All of those things have really helped shape our offers and what we're able to offer to therapists. I have even taken to saying in my job ads that if wages is your number one priority, then we're not the business for you. That is not our biggest focus. And I completely appreciate that sometimes that is the goal yeah, for people yeah. and that's okay. It just is not what we are about at the moment. It's an interesting kind of distinction, just calling it out and being able to position yourself in the marketplace in a different way like you did that time ago when you first started. Really, really neat to be able to do that. And I love that you touched on around how retention is an important element to recruitment, being Mm -hmm. like, hey, we can speak to the fact that people stick around here and they love it. 
and uh, therefore they can see, well, there's value in joining this team. I want to be part of it. Yeah, re- really neat. The thing that we see in recruitment, right, is everyone's got to market or sell a role and, and we say you got to tell them, then you got to show them, like let me see the thing you're talking about. Let's say it's mentoring or supervision. I want to be able to see it to get some tangibility. And then ideally, maybe I can involve them. So that would be like work experience. They can actually touch it. They can experience it. And that that helps people really understand where you're positioned and ideally get them closer to making a decision to choose you if indeed they're the right fit. So how do you go about sort of telling people about dots? What are some of the elements that you feel you do particularly well in terms of the show and involve on the back end that yeah. others might also say they do, but probably do differently? What are some of the things that kind of separate dots from your opinion and especially how you put it out to the marketplace? I think like our professional development is pretty amazing that we offer in-house that every fortnight we run in-house professional development. We connect as a whole team over Zoom. They're recorded. They've got a whole library to go back to and watch as well as what every other clinic offers, which is a budget to do external PD. And then on top of that, also paying for external people to come in and present to us once a term as well at those team days. So they just don't have enough time to do the amount of PD that we offer. And I think also the showing our Instagram page is run by our therapists. So it is our therapists who are posting to that Instagram page. It is not me. We don't have marketing behind us. It is our therapists who produce those posts. So it really does give a true insight into what the options are. Mm. And I think our current staff are our biggest advertisers. So I always say to candidates that I'm happy to connect them with a current team member and they can have a chat through any questions or concerns that they've got. I've had candidates ask to speak to specific people on the team who've worked at previous companies that they've worked out and transitioned from there. I don't have anything to hide, I guess. So I'm very happy to to talk to whoever they'd like to because I feel really confident in what we offer, which I think really shines through in interviews. A really big difference now is I never interview alone. So I always interview with at least one other team member. And I think that makes a really big difference to what gets presented in the interviews. Yeah, talk me through that. That's the team member presenting what the clinic's like? Yeah. So it's also a good opportunity for our team to have an experience in sitting on that side of being able to interview. So I think it's a good pathway opportunity as well. And so when we are in the interview, we have a list of questions and we don't predetermine who's going to ask what, but we just kind of have them as a guide and as the conversation flows. I've had in those interviews that it organically come up that the person sitting next to me has just expressed how much they value my leadership and the difference that they've found in my leadership versus someone else's. Uh That's not pre-scripted, but it's been really, really valuable for that to come up or uh, to hear what it's actually like working with clients and having a caseload because I don't hold a caseload currently. So I think that it speaks differently when they're speaking to it and I can throw to them and say, you might be better answering this given you hold the caseload. Mm. So I think just those sort of values that I can't add myself are really beneficial. Not having a caseload, you know, as health professionals, we train to help clients. We help clients, we build a reputation and it becomes quite enjoyable, quite meaningful to make a difference in people's lives. 
How was it for you transitioning from seeing a caseload of clients to seeing none at all and being a full-time business owner? So many people wrestle with doing that or making that leap. What was your experience? I think having a baby helps. I think having to go on mat leave, I do think it would have been a lot harder if there wasn't that deadline of I physically can't do it. And I think that's one thing that I talk to my team about is I say, like, you know, if you were to have a baby or if you physically already had six clients in your calendar, you would have to say no. There would be a physical barrier making you say no, whereas when you've got that space, you find it harder. We need to create those physical barriers so that you do have to say no. We have to treat things like your admin time as important as a client. So we can't just try and squeeze another one in there. So I think it's about the mindset and Mm. getting there, but it is challenging. And the first time I came back, I picked up a full caseload by the time I had Pippa again. But then after Pippa, I haven't seen a caseload I sit in on sessions with some of my therapists and I provide support for more complex issues around feeding and things like that, but I don't hold a caseload myself. And what's life like now? You mentioned playing with the kids, being able to do sort of the school drop, run, pick up, et cetera. What's life like now and how is family in particular integrated into your working week? Yeah, well, as Ben, you know, we've integrated family a lot in my husband, Warwick, now works in the business, (laughs) which does make a big difference. It means that we, yeah, definitely can do school pickup and drop off and go to swimming lessons and be the parent helpers at school because we do have that flexibility to work from home. Our team is really well-versed in using Zoom and connecting that way and us doing a lot of coaching around what would the difference be if we were sitting in a room versus talking across the screens because we use it as an everyday tool because some of their supervisors aren't on the same site as them. I think that makes it easier having three different sites because they're used to working across sites using Zoom. So they don't mind if I'm working from home, for example, because it doesn't feel that different to them. I was going to ask because you mentioned earlier about your own experience of a director that wasn't present Mm. and how that impacted you. How do you do that you know, being able to not have a caseload and perhaps work remotely, work in the clinic, how do you maintain that presence and that sense that people feel like they can connect with you? Mm, I think Slack plays a massive role in that. We use Slack in our clinic and, yeah, that communication tool just shows where you are. It shows who's present. Our team have the same opportunity to work from home if they have admin or telehealth sessions. So I think just having the same expectations of the team and knowing that we're available, I'll often get a message saying, can we jump on a quick call for 10 minutes? I don't use the phone. We use Zoom only. So I never, if a therapist says, can we catch up? I say, absolutely, let's jump on a Zoom link. So it's always face-to-face. It's not a phone call. Absolutely, I'm available on the phone for quick things as needed, but it's very rare that we have phone calls. It's usually either a Slack call or a Zoom chat. Love the use of tech there. Mm. And your team being receptive to being able to do that as well is pretty cool. I imagine over time you've had team members that aren't so receptive to changes or the way that things are done. What is your approach, you know, broadly to getting team members on board? Because you are 
uh, hustler. You are a mover and shaker. You make things happen. You're like, all right, let's do it. You know, I think case in point being having baby and launching the new site all at the same time, you've got that get up and go. Not every team member has that. How do you go about approaching getting team members on board? Because so many who are listening in would say, yeah, but I've got these folks on my team that feel like a bit of a ball and chain or feel hard to bring along the journey. How do you go about getting team members on board with the rate of change in the vision and, and progression that you have? I think also my team being able to tell me sometimes that it is too much for them and me saying, yes, I need to recognize that as well and right. make sure that we provide as much warning as possible and be really clear in that communication. But also I think it starts right from when you hire them, making sure that that's the right fit for the team and being not talking rubbish in interviews, like being really clear about this is the way that our team work. We absolutely have professional development, but it is online and we really see the value in that. And I think when they see everyone else being comfortable with that, they are more comfortable. I think also someone said to me once that I shouldn't be changing the way that I work based on someone in my team because they're the ones that will leave. I'll always be the one that's in the team. It's always going to be me present. And so I need to make sure that I'm comfortable with all the decisions that we're making. And sometimes that is a hard call to be making someone uncomfortable in the sense yes. that you feel like it doesn't work for them. But if it doesn't work, well, we might not be the right workplace right now mm. for them. And I know that we are in a very fortunate position in paediatric OT because we have a wait list and there is therapists still available for work. And so I don't think every discipline has that availability to be able to think, oh, well, if I lose this team member, that they will be able to replace them. But we just try and do as much coaching and as much support and understand that everyone's at a different level. And for some people, it's going to be a quicker adjustment than other people. And because we have that foundation of communication, they can say when it is too much and they can say if they need more time. When you have to deal with situations like that with a team member, as an example, you know, you can feel all sorts of different things as an owner. There's, there's so much of a burden. If you would, you use the word privilege a few times. I think it's the Billy Jean quote that I shared in the book around pressure is a privilege. You know, the pressure to make some big decisions for people, whether we expand to a new site, we recruit this person, we progress this person, we let this person go. How do you go about dealing with the stresses, the adversities, the challenges, especially over the last couple of years with COVID? How do you go about dealing with that so that you take care of yourself and that also yeah. you're able to take care of, you know, the massive and growing team that you've got? Yes. So I do a lot of debriefing with Lisa and Louise, my practice managers, and also with Warwick, our business development manager, husband, but also making sure that I can just sometimes say I need to switch off. But I think also reminding myself that it's always worked out in the past and we would get there. We are looking at potentially growing our Footscray site, which does make me lose sleep at night over the fact that we'd have to recruit to these couple of positions at Werribee as well as then some more in Footscray. And so I absolutely still lose sleep. I still feel stressed. But I also think it's a bit like when my therapists have clients that are really challenging that I talk to them about. They're the clients we learn the most from and the ones that we feel the most success with. I think it's the same in business that 
the biggest challenges that we have are the ones that we feel the most success with once we're through them. And so I think now that we're almost 10 years in that I've got the confidence that we've ridden all the other waves. And now, I mean, I've had some big things happen in business that I know I'm through the other side of, and I think this will just be another thing that we eventually get through the other side of. Doesn't mean it's terrifying, but we will. <laughs> I think reminding yourself that you'll learn the most through these experiences and they'll be the ones that can help other people too when you're talking to them. It's a great perspective to have. Do you have any rituals or behaviors or things that you find help work through those scenarios? Is it just continue to use communication as your core tool with the leadership around you? Do you find any other things that you do are particularly helpful when you're, uh, you know, faced with big decisions or in a challenging spot? Yeah, I think looking at the numbers helps. Like, I think if you can remind yourself that it is going to be okay, even if you kind of lose this percentage, as long as your numbers are there to support you, it can be reassuring. It can be a bit scary, like looking at them sometimes and thinking that is a tight line to be walking, but just knowing that I think that is helpful. What's your journey been like with numbers? Because from my observation, there's a small percentage of people that love numbers and they geek out about it and they have spreadsheets for spreadsheets and they can analyze things. And then there's plenty of folks, you know, I'd even put myself in that category where we don't absolutely love it. We know it's important. We got to do it. But what's your journey been like with using numbers in business to make key decisions? Terrible. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I am definitely in the, I don't love the numbers. And that's why now I'm at a point that I have other people doing the numbers. So that's Lisa's role. She's a finance practice manager and Warwick now is focusing on that part of the business. So really I look at very rough numbers like projection wise, looking at last year's same time period. I think Clinic Mastery has got me looking at numbers more so when we send them through each month and look at the monthly numbers. I don't even do them, Louise does it. <laughs> so I think I'm getting better. But I mean I couldn't even tell you what I earned in the first year of business like you said, can be confronting, can be daunting to do. It's definitely needed and it really helps inform the decisions that we all make. But it's quite an interesting one as health professionals. We're used to numbers. Most of us probably did a version of statistics at university, whether it was just one semester or more, but we use assessment tools and use numbers most commonly in client care. But when it comes to being in business, it's not often used or there's a few that are used, but there's greater scope to really understand business and make smart financial decisions. It's always interesting to know the journey that you've been on and that you're always getting better and that you've got a team of people who maybe enjoy it more or are more capable or have built greater capabilities in those areas to support you. I was just going to say the rough way that I tend to look at them is think about how many therapists we have, what kind of revenue we expect on average for them to do, do that out and then what our costs are. And that's enough of a comfort for me during those times of stress. (laughs) Yeah. Just even that rough. It's a good point to make when you're feeling that stress to be able to go get some certainty when maybe there's some uncertainty causing that stress and using numbers to be a tool to be able to help you do that. If numbers maybe aren't your jam, what would you say your real genius is in business, being a clinic owner, the thing that like, yeah, this is in my 
wheelhouse or my genius to be able to do. I, I'm really good if I can just do this every single day. What would that be for you? I think making connections with the team and the families and being understanding of different situations that families might be experiencing. I always say that I want, like, I'm happy to grow the business, but I never want it to feel like a big corporation. I want it to feel still like a family-run business. So I think that is our strength in being connected to our team and connected to our families. I love that. If you were to ask the next guest, which you don't know who it will be, but if you were to ask the next guest on the podcast a question about running a clinic, what question would you ask them? What would you most like to know the answer to or hear another perspective on? I think the best thing I'd want to know is around retention of staff and how to create variety in a caseload because I think we can do everything that we are doing and we retain staff well, but the reasons people leave is to experience a different workplace. Mm. And that's something that's really hard to retain staff around. Very important to be able to do that. If you're going to grow sustainably is to be able to retain the team members that you have and provide meaningful pathways for progression. Love it. Well, Hannah, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've learned a lot and taken a heap of notes. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Always good to chat. Thanks for tuning in to the Grow Your Clinic podcast. To find out more about past episodes or how we can help you, head to www.clinicmastery.com forward slash podcast. And please remember to rate and review us on your podcast player of choice. See you on the next episode. Thank you.